Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. More generally, this air of crisis is just going to force companies to look again at the wisdom of supply chains, which crisscross Asia in a way that didn't take account of geopolitical boundaries. You already see a move by many companies to try and create more robust and resilient supply chains to geopolitical shocks. And so that might mean companies like TSMC or Global Foundries building semiconductor plants in Arizona or in Singapore. It might mean companies that have previously sourced from China to create products that will ultimately be sold in the U.S. will now source from Vietnam or from India instead. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and we are in the midst of a new world order. What are the flashpoints in Asia Pacific and what would be the impact to the supply chain and then to the global economy? With me today, I have James Crabtree, Executive Director, International Institute for Strategic Studies to discuss these key questions that will impact the business of Asia. James, welcome again to the podcast. Hi, Bernard. Great to be with you. Our last conversation was about four years back, was a discussion on your book, The Billionaire Raj, which seemed to have done very well as well. And then you, at that point, you were with the Lee Kuan Yew School of Government as a teaching professor there. Since then, what has happened between now and then for you? Well, I think the, the thesis of the book has held up pretty well, actually. So the book was about the rise of India's super rich and the, the problems of crony capitalism that came with it. India's super rich in the interim have only got richer. You've seen in the last week that Gautam Adani, who's an Indian billionaire who I profiled in one of the early chapters in the book, has vaulted up to become the second richest person in the whole world, as measured by Forbes and, and various other Indian billionaires are also doing very nicely for themselves. Speaking personally, I have not uh, achieved my aim of becoming a billionaire. I now live in Singapore and run the Asian office of a research institute called the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So I still follow India reasonably closely, but I spend a lot of my time thinking about geopolitics and defense policy in Asia now from my perch in Singapore on the from a, a skyscraper in Republic Plaza, from where I'm talking to you this afternoon. And I think one interesting thing is I also want to understand. So can you talk about what the International Institute for Strategic Studies, what do they do and what's your role and coverage there? Well, so it's a research institute and think tank. It's headquartered in London. In Singapore, it's best known for running an annual meeting of defense and security ministers from around the world called the Shangri-La Dialogue, which happens at the Shangri-La Hotel every June. We just had one a couple of months ago. And so if you walk into the lobby of the Shangri-La Hotel on the weekend of the dialogue, you'll see defense ministers and heads of army military figures from not just our region in Southeast Asia, but from China, from the United States, from India, from all around the world. And so that, that's something that the Institute is very well known for. Beyond that, we're a, we're a think tank. We publish research, we do analysis, we bring people together in various different ways to talk about the challenges of Asia-Pacific security, of which, as you know better than most and your listeners will as well, there are many 
at the moment, uh, not least the relationship between the United States and China. I think one interesting thing that, which is the main subject of the day I want to talk to you, is about the flashpoints that's happening in Asia Pacific and the supply chain challenges. I want to start off by beginning the conversation on China because I recall that you recently have a conversation with Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia and now the President of the Asian Society, which I'm also part of the alumnus of. I think as we look at the US-China ongoing tensions from Taiwan, exacerbated by Nancy Pelosi's recent visit and to a slow road of this supply chain decoupling with sanctions on China acquiring choke point technologies like semiconductor. I think now AI chips are also being sanctioned as well. It looks like we are really heading towards the Thucydides trap or probably the, pro- the tragedy of great power politics pointed out by John Mersheimer. Is war between China and the US avoidable from what Kevin Wright has been trying to promote that thesis? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly avoidable. I, I think, however, we're entering a period of, of great politics in which tensions between the bigger powers are much more high profile, much more ever present than they were before in the period in which the United States was the dominant player. And so the kind of crisis that you've seen over Taiwan in, in recent weeks and months, I think is likely to happen more often uh, as we move from a world in which the United States was the, the, the sole superpower, a, a kind of one hegemon moment into one in which you have two, three, four, five big powers, and uh, that creates an inherent instability. And there are particular flashpoints like Taiwan, in which none of, the, none of those involved, not the United States, not China, not Taiwan itself, are, are in a sense sticking to the, the prevailing status quo. And that just creates a lot of instability. It doesn't mean that we're going to end up having a war between the United States and China next year, or even in 10 years, maybe even not in 20 years. But I think it does mean that we're likely to have more of the kind of international crises that could plausibly lead to conflict if, if either one side decides they want that, or if there's a misjudgment. And I think this morning, I think President Biden was already saying that he would defend Taiwan if China make an unprecedented move. I think the calculus is on both sides to think about what is the what is the win-lose scenarios and it's actually is a lose-lose situation if both of them gets into war. I think one interesting thing that the reason why Taiwan is becoming such a big discussion topic, not just in politics, but also in business as well, TSMC, which is the ninth most valuable company in the world, which I last checked, and Foxconn's are pretty important companies in Asia and they are based in Taiwan or their HQs are based in Taiwan. I think... One question I probably will ask is, what's the risk of Asian supply chains being disrupted if China hypothetically made a move on Taiwan? Will the supply chains head back to the US, for example, with the CHIPS Act, that uh, Intel now being the key benefactor? I mean, were there to be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which is a very extreme scenario, then obviously that would have an enormously disruptive effect on supply chains in Asia. I think that the more focused question we might ask is if there is a, an increase in tension in the region of which Taiwan is one focal point, then what will that do to supply chains? So when there's a crisis, as there was in Taiwan, then that has a short-term disruptive effect. You saw that that affected shipping, for instance, were there to be an embargo of some sort, a blockade of Taiwan, that, that would have an effect. More generally, this air of crisis is just going to force companies to look again at the wisdom of supply chains, which crisscross Asia in a way that didn't take account of geopolitical boundaries. And so I think you already see a move by many companies to try and create more robust and resilient 
supply chains to geopolitical shocks. And so that might mean companies like TSMC or Global Foundries building semiconductor plants in Arizona or in Singapore. It might mean companies that have previously sourced from China to create products that will ultimately be sold in the US will now source from Vietnam or from India instead. So I think you'll see a gradual disentangling of some of these supply chains, but from a very high base. I mean, you have to remember that that we are uh, in a period still of a very intense globalization and that although there has been a little bit of a rollback from that during COVID and during the early periods of this crisis, it's still a very uh, globally integrated world that we see. And so there's an awful lot of disentangling to be done. And so we're, we're really only at the very beginnings of this journey. You, you saw in the, the beginnings of the, the conflict in Ukraine, what it means to actually decouple, which is what happened largely between the West and Russia in the early period of that, that conflict. The US and China and, and the other countries who are worried about China are nowhere near that stage yet. So that, in one sense, is optimistic because it means that there hasn't been a big crisis yet or the perception is not that a crisis is so likely that that disentangling has to happen. It could also be read pessimistically as in, you know, we've got a long way down to go. And I want to double click into that because the semiconductor supply chain, as far as I understand, as well as the technologies, I think the real key issue at the moment is going down the nanometers, as in the three nanometers to five nanometers, which I think the expertise currently still lies within Taiwan and somehow semiconductor expertise cannot be transported because it's very it's very dependent on the specific skill set of the workforce on there. I mean, even if you decouple and you have to shift out all those out of Taiwan, there is this choke point of the latest and the brightest. I think the question then it becomes whether China will be able to get its hands on the older technologies or they have to create their own. And one key choke point that they have is in Netherlands, which is ASML, where who built the lithography, the only lithography machines that they are subjected to export controls for that. Then how do you actually break that supply chain unless China has to innovate on its own as well? I think you've put that quite well, actually, that, that that's the situation in the semiconductor market, which is that there have been attempts by the Americans and to some degree the Europeans and the Japanese to persuade TSMC or to pay TSMC lots of money to set up new, more advanced fabs in North America or Ireland or Japan. You also have companies like Intel that will benefit from the CHIPS Act, which you mentioned. But that doesn't really go much of the way to creating a self-sufficiency in CHIPS. Taiwan remains the, the world's dominant supplier, and China is also pretty important as a supplier of more basic semiconductors. Equally, Taiwan is the global center for the development of the advanced 5, 3, and 2 nanometer chips that are really at the cutting edge that will define the next era of, of the industry. So I think it's a, it's a very complicated position that just as in the war against uh, between Russia and Ukraine, it has had very significant economic aftershocks for the rest of the world in terms of fuel and commodity prices. That's only a tiny taste of the economic crisis that would follow if suddenly there was a major disruption in the global semiconductor market. And so I think in, in that sense, all sides do have an incentive for moderation because the economic effects of a, of a full-blown conflict between the US and China would be very profound indeed. Um, and perhaps that may, to some degree, give pause for thought in Washington and Beijing. Mm. And I just really have one more question on this topic and before I move on, on to the impact of the relationship between China and Russia on Ukraine. I, I'm just curious, suppose let's say you are able to take out all the expertise from Taiwan on the semiconductors, okay? And then it's being transferred out 
and then no, Taiwan no longer becomes viable in that expertise. Would that facilitate a faster integration back to China at some point in a more peaceful way, or it will always remain a flashpoint and you know you are forever being stuck in this situation for the U.S. that they have to defend Taiwan regardless of what the Chinese do? Is there a, is there a path for economic integration or the avoidable war? which Kevin Rudd is talking about. I mean, I don't know whether that's a very useful hypothetical to talk about because it's not, it's not really going to happen uh, uh, in, in a sense. The idea that somehow Taiwan's semiconductor industry is, disappears is not very likely either because it's outcompeted by the West and therefore the West becomes self-reliant in semiconductors. I mean, it would take a massive institutional effort over decades and to be honest, the country that has tried to do that and not made much progress at the moment is China. So I think that the conundrum over Taiwan, both in terms of its strategic position and in terms of its role in the global semiconductor supply chain, is likely to be with us for a very long time. And, and in a sense, there's not really much get, getting around that. People call, call this the silicon shield. And the, the notion there is that because Taiwan has this uh, vitally important industry, it gives an incentive for the United States to support Taiwan, which it might not otherwise have. But really, the United States isn't interested in supporting Taiwan simply because of its semiconductor industry. It's not like oil in the Middle East. I mean, it's interested in supporting Taiwan because Taiwan has a very important geostrategic location in the Asia-Pacific, and the United States is worried that were Taiwan to fall, then in a sense that would, would undermine confidence in the existing system, and it also has certain kind of military implications as well. So I, I don't think the kind of hypothetical scenario that you talked about is, is terribly likely, and I, I don't think there's going to be any easy way out of this challenge over Taiwan. And I think I'm going to switch gears a bit coming to the Russia-Ukraine war. And I think one thing I'd really like to get your thoughts on is how should we look at the relationship between China and Russia now? I think two things I'm pretty curious about. I think there was a meeting last weekend for President Xi and Putin. And then, you know, President Xi expressed his concerns. And similarly, with Modi from India was also expressed their concerns. What is likely the things that the Chinese have learned from Russia's invasion of Ukraine as well? Well, we don't know uh, is the honest answer because the Chinese system is quite opaque. I think it is reasonable to infer that, that China will be a little bit more cautious about any plans it might be developing over, over Taiwan because, A, you know, military adventures are uncertain and sometimes your generals don't give you an honest picture of what they're able to do. They tell you what they think that you want to hear. And so that has partially been true in the Russian system where Russia clearly thought that it was going to do much better than it has done. Equally, the war in Ukraine has showcased some enduring strengths in the Western system. So the United States has come out of the Ukraine conflict looking reasonably competent. So, I mean, it, it, it predicted what would happen. It has been demonstrated to be a leader in the realm of high technology weaponry. It has managed to convene a reasonably convincing coalition of nations to help Ukraine. And at least over the last couple of weeks, the aid that it's providing to Ukraine appears to be having an effect on the ground. And so those two things, the, the, the way that Ukraine has reflected reasonably positively on the West, in particular, you compare it to the aftermath of the drawdown from Afghanistan, in which the West appeared to be in a somewhat chaotic position. And then the, the inherent unknowability of, of conflict, I think, might make China pause. 
On the other hand, it has had other interesting effects in the Asia-Pacific region, one of which you mentioned, which is that it has cemented a closer relationship between Russia and China. And that certainly has some implications in in our region, not so much over Taiwan, but it's something that would worry a country like Japan. It has meant that Russia is more focused on this part of the world, which has implications for countries like Myanmar. So Ukraine might be a long way away from Asia, but it's had many, many different effects in terms of the aftershocks in our region. Mm. How do you look at what the Indian, India and China's position on Russia's invasion now? They, I mean, they have kind of moderated their positions a little bit forward now and expressing their concerns then. Well, I, I think you're, you're talking, I think, so we, we're just talking just after the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, which happened a couple of days ago in, uh, in Samarkand. The headlines out of that, uh, in particular about India, in which India appeared to criticize uh, Vladimir Putin and China, also has sort of distanced itself a little bit from Putin. So people are reading that as a, as a reflection of their particular stances. I think I mean, the, the back and forth of India's position on Ukraine uh, shouldn't distract us from the more important point, which is that India has become much more comfortable siding with the West in big international disputes and has grown much closer to the United States in large part because they have common cause in their concern about China. So it is true that India will maintain its own foreign policy and isn't going to do everything that the West wants it to do. And so it was not willing to criticize Russia over Ukraine, and it wants to keep the vestige of a relationship with Russia. But I think it recognizes that the value of the relationship it has with Russia is declining as Russia's power is declining, and the importance of its relationship with the West is gradually increasing. And that's not my view. I mean, you you, you can see that pretty clearly by reading the speeches of the Indian Foreign Affairs Minister, Jayashankar. And he's been fairly robust in, in laying out where India sees its position here, which is not one of equidistance or non-alignment, but one in which India is, is much more comfortable siding with not just the West, but countries like Japan as well. So with the COVID-0 lockdown for China, they have also slowed down their Belt Road initiative. I guess till when they open up and will they still continue their economic expansion through the BRI itself now? You don't hear as much about BRI as you used to. So BRI was founded in 2013. It had five very heady years to start with in which it built up a head of steam and they invested lots and lots of money. The, the sums going into BRI have declined somewhat of late, partly because of China's concerns about the type of investments it was making and the returns that it was getting. Also, as China's economy has slowed down and then it came to a crunching halt during COVID. I think as China goes to the, the 20th Party Congress in October and then looks forward to, to 2023, 2024. The BRI is no longer at the heart of Xi Jinping's foreign policy. He now has some new initiatives, a global development initiative, a global security initiative, which so far have been thinly fleshed out. But he's also coping with the fact that China's economy is simply growing more slowly than it used to be, even if it avoids a, a, a debt fuel blow up, which is possible, although probably not that likely. And so in that background, it simply has less money to spend on very expensive international rail lines or port projects or power projects. And so I think China will focus its investment a little bit more sparingly than perhaps it did in the past. Mm. So one interesting thing is that in the North Asia region, there is volatility now. How will the likes of Japan and Korea handle the volatility that exists in the North Asia region. And they're very close to China as well. They, they are straddling between both the West powers together with, with China as well. 
Yeah, both Japan and uh, the Republic of Korea are in a, a complicated position because they have very important economic relationships with China and they do want to maintain a reasonably positive relationship with China. And so they they don't tend to be willing to be too forward-leaning in their relationship with Beijing. On the other hand, it's pretty clear in both cases which country it is in the region that they find to be destabilizing and intimidating and which they're worried about, and, and that's China. Now, so they've responded to this in slightly different ways. Japan has been more assertive. It is a member of the Quad, and it has been very busy developing not just deeper relationships with the United States, but other countries in, in Europe and around Asia. It's also going to substantially increase its defense spending. Uh, the Republic of Korea has typically had a more even-handed approach, but it has a new government elected not that long ago, so it has a new leader, and the new government is more conservative in Republic of Korea terms, meaning more pro-Western, more pro-American, more skeptical of China, and that means that they too are willing to take greater risk to coordinate with the the Quad nations and those like them to try and come up with ways of managing China's rise of protecting the existing Asian order. I think one interesting thing now that's ongoing, and I'm going to shift from the Japan-Korea back to India, which I know you're very familiar with. From the outside, it seems that India is the largest democracy in the world. But likewise, on the ground, it looks very different to me. It, it show, it's been showing a little bit of signs of different types of authoritarianism at work. As a person who covers India for, for a relatively long time, do you see India still, is it shifting away of being the world's largest democracy towards something else? Or is it just, it's just a, because of just political parties changing hands and they have different points of view in terms of how they want to govern? I think it's a, a sort of paradoxical moment for the relationship of the West and India. So in terms of domestic politics, then the available evidence suggests that India has been becoming less democratic. So there are various different indices that people follow tracking the health of global democracies. And uh, one of them is based in Sweden. It's called the VDEM uh, Institute in Gothenburg. You have the Economist Intelligence Unit. There's also Freedom House. All of them track a gradual decline in India's democratic health over the last 20 years or so, and particularly under the government of Narendra Modi since 2014. And that is measuring things like the treatment of minorities, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, the health of independent institutions like the judiciary. So that's not so not so good. I mean, I, I, the evidence doesn't, to my mind, suggest that India is no longer a democracy, although there are some academics who would argue that. So that's one cause for worry about the nature of the relationship with India uh, in the West. On the other hand, you have the geopolitical side of things in which many, indeed almost all Western countries are desperate to forge a closer relationship with India. That's partly driven by economics and the fact that India is a huge and growing market, growing particularly well at the moment. So there's a lot of optimism about India's economic growth. We're going through a sort of moment of India bullishness, but it's really driven by the geopolitics and the fact that India is a crucial part of the West's a sort of jigsaw puzzle of how to manage China's rise. The, 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 the countries that are trying to contest China's rise, Japan and Australia and the United States, that grouping looks much less formidable without India. So if, if it was just a trio as opposed to a quad, and the same is true with the European countries as well. So you have this 
the two clashing halves of the Western mind that, that, that there is this concern about India's democratic trajectory internally, but externally, there's a great desire to court India. And basically, the, the external concern trumps the internal concern, by which I mean, you just don't hear the Western leaders talk about Indian democracy and human rights as often as they used to. And that's because they've made a quite hard-headed calculation that they want to be friends with India and friends with Narendra Modi. So they, they don't want to annoy him too much. You saw that in the debate about Ukraine, in which there was, I think, a bit of disappointment from some in the West that India did not support sanctions against Russia, for instance, or would not speak out against Russia at the United Nations, as, for instance, even Singapore did here in Southeast Asia. But in the end, you know, people shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, India has its own preferences and the relationship with India is too important to throw by the wayside. So I guess now that my question towards um, the impact of business will come, can the fragile supply chain now in Asia-Pacific be able to handle the global demand in manufacturing. I will just use mobile, mobile phones, right? For example, you know, if war breaks up between Taiwan and China, no iPhones for the next few years. So, I mean, I'm just being tongue-in-cheek here, but it also have impact to other things from food, from other manufacturing, Christmas presents for the kids in US and Europe as well as that. If, as I said before, if there is a conflict between the US and China, then this will have massive implications for all sorts of global supply chains of which um, the difficulties that we between Russia and the US are just a, a foretaste. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't happen. In the end, as we saw in the run-up to 1914 and many other times in human history, one can stumble into conflict almost accidentally or through misjudgment. And then countries will endure an enormous amount of suffering and economic hardship in the name of, of military victory. I mean, you don't see people in Ukraine arguing for capitulation with Russia simply because their economy was contracted by 15% in the last two quarters. You see Ukrainians arguing for precisely the opposite, which is that they want to win this war despite the economic hardship that it has brought. So I think you can argue both sides of this, one of which is that you're absolutely right, that there would be extraordinarily wide-ranging economic consequences from the prospect of, of, of a conflict involving any of the, the major powers, but particularly the US and China, and that with luck that will cause people to, to seek mechanisms for, for cooperation and de-escalation. But I wouldn't put all your faith in that because the legacy of human conflict is that when push comes to shove, people are willing to endure a lot of economic hardship. And you see that on both sides of the Russia-Ukraine crisis at present. And then how will Asian businesses navigate through this current geopolitical landscape in Asia? I mean, I see this even happening in like local businesses within Southeast Asia. They are now beginning to handle two systems, the systems that came from the US and the systems that come from China. And my thesis is that there will exist routers between that will route between both the Chinese and the US system. I, I can give you an example using, say, Beijing has this Beidou system for navigation and then US has this GPS system. And now there are two systems that the rest of the world had to deal with as such. I think that's a very good example of what's likely to happen, that we will see a gradual creation of a, of a certain kind of bifurcation of systems and supply chains and standards. And the greater the perceived threat of, of serious conflict between the two sides, the faster that that will happen. And at the moment, I think you have two different reactions. Some companies 
are, in a sense, planning prudently to try and disentangle themselves from, from the Chinese system. Not so much companies leaving China entirely. So a company like Volkswagen, for instance, would still want to, to make cars for the Chinese market. But they also want to create a supply by which, if there were to be disruptions, then the cars that are not for sale in China can still get made. So there's a bit of prudent disentangling. And then elsewhere, there's people who have their fingers stuck in their ears and who are kind of plowing on regardless. I mean, you still get quite a lot of companies who are still investing in China in the financial services and insurance space and technology. And China is still a very it's a large tempting market with a vast number of consumers, potentially much larger than any other market still. And so some companies are going to continue down that path until, in a sense, they get a, a rude awakening when the, the fault lines between the US and China turn into a full-scale earthquake. And I guess with the world taking a retreat from globalization towards its own net national interests, I'm quite curious, given that you're a thought leader in you're looking at all the geopolitics and the strategic build-up of you know military within the region. What is the future of Asia in the next decade? Then, I mean, that's a very big question. I, I think, broad terms, the future of Asia still remains very economically dynamic. The, the, the thesis of the Asian century, which is that geopolitical and economic gravity is going to move to this region, remains correct. And indeed, there's a pretty good chance that that will actually accelerate particularly if India gets its growth model. But Asia faces a number of very complicated challenges. On the one hand, it has to find a way of managing these geopolitical tensions in a setup in which Asia doesn't really have any common institutions that will help it manage these in a comprehensive sense. You have a, a mishmash of security institutions, some of which are based around ASEAN, some of which are new minilateral forms of cooperation like the Quad, but there's not a kind of one place that you can go to in Asia to manage these security dilemmas. Equally, and I think it's important that we mention this, over the next decade, Asia is is, is growing and becoming the center of world affairs at the moment in which we have to manage the challenge of climate change, which you know could become increasingly catastrophic and certainly will drag on, on economic growth. So I don't think that the if lying behind your question is a, is a sort of, are we about to blow the, the Asian century? Not immediately, the, the basic building blocks of, of the transfer of, of uh, power and wealth from other parts of the world to Asia remain in place. But that is contingent on countries in Asia and those that have a significant input in, in, in Asia, so including the United States and some of the European countries, finding a way to manage these tensions in a way that doesn't lead to a sort of conflict that everybody would like to avoid. James, many thanks for coming on the podcast and share your thoughts and perspectives on where Asia is heading and what are the flashpoints on there. In closing, I have two questions. My first question is any recommendations that have inspired you recently, books, movies, TV shows, or something else? The, the television program that I've been telling people to watch is a French spy thriller called The Bureau, which is annoyingly not available on any of the obvious platforms in uh, in Singapore. It's a, a very realistic spy drama based on the DGSR, which is the, the equivalent of MI6 or the CIA. Uh, so that, that I think, was well, well worth reading. Um, in terms of books, uh, I read the Kevin Rudd book, which you mentioned earlier, which I 
thought we'd a, a reasonable rundown. I'm just about to start reading a new book since we were talking about semiconductors, just about to start reading a book which is about to come out called Chip War by Chris Miller, which is a history of the semiconductor industry and, and in a sense how it has shaped modern capitalism and uh, the US-China conflict. So I think that will come out in a month or two and that's one that your listeners might want to pick up. So. And thank you for the recommendations. Where can my audience find you? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at James Crabtree. Add me on LinkedIn. That may be the best way to do it. So I'm very happy to add people on LinkedIn just to just mention that you heard the podcast and um, to be found around Singapore most of the time. So uh, it's great to have been on the show. Thanks again, Bernard. It's lovely to be mm. back on. You can definitely find us on any podcast platform. And for advertising, you can just send an email to me. And if you have any feedback for us, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or tweet me the feedback on Analyze Asia, A-N-A-R-Y-S-E Asia. James, many thanks for coming on the show. And I really appreciate your thought leadership on the matter. And I look forward to speak to you in the future. Thanks, Bernard. All the best.